Thanks, Jake. Can you hear me over the fans? Yeah, all right, back there, Ben. Good? All right, great. So one of my favorite authors wrote this. Blind certainty, a closed-mindedness that amounts to an imprisonment so total that the prisoner doesn't even know he's locked up. I love that quote. I think he stole it, though, from Jesus Christ. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus, when he was dealing with the religious leaders, said, because you say we see... Your sin remains, or in other words, you remain blind. One of the most challenging and consistent themes of Jesus' ministry was the call to become like children. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't think this has anything to do with innocence regained. But I think it has to do with the idea of not knowing, of not knowing, of having a child's mind of curiosity, Wonder, searching, learning, questioning, being open to ever new possibilities. Always seeking a deeper and more authentic understanding of the truth. That's kids, isn't it? Why? And you tell them. Well, why? And you tell them. Why? And you tell them. And then you get frustrated. But God doesn't. I think God loves the wise. So how could we ever know? Everything God wants to tell us. Isn't that what eternity is going to be about? See, Jesus knew that once we claim absolute certainty about truths that are so big, truths that come from God, therefore they contain eternity in them, and so they always have deeper and deeper levels to them that need to be explored, right? Once we claim absolute certainty, we actually become blind. And then we lose even the most important though limited understanding we had. We become prisoners who don't even know we're locked up. Relationship with God is not, sadly, though religion has told us it is, but it's not based on transaction. It's not based on requirements or complete command of facts. Tito, Joe, does Emily do anything for you right now? Nothing, right? If anything, she's taking things away. How much joy does she fill you with? Never felt it before when she was placing your arms, right? Sam, Jill, Laney? Everyone who's been a parent knows we're just parents. With sin and we're fallen and we know the joy of something that came from us that gives us. God is perfect, created us. The ultimate arrogance in a human being is to think we can give God something. More arrogant, actually, I was wrong. That's not the ultimate arrogance. More arrogant is that we have to give God something. God made us and profoundly delights in us. Profoundly. Think about that. Relationship with God is not based on transaction or requirement or complete, complete command of facts. It is about seeing. Seeing. He sees us and we need to see Him. 
And when Emily first started to recognize you, has she got to that phase yet? She knows daddy and mommy's face. Isn't that, there's nothing like that, right? God wants us to see him. I think this is why Jesus said, your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, what's a healthy eye? An eye that can see. Then your body is filled with light. But if it is not healthy, blind, your body is full of darkness. God wants us to see. But here's the paradox of the kingdom of God, because everything is paradox in the kingdom. Seeing comes from recognizing we can't see and asking to have our eyes opened and never stop asking to have our eyes opened, which is really tough for us here in the West with our Greek mindset. This is what it means to be a child. Always asking, always seeking, always wanting to see more. Here's the challenge. Both age and religion tend to make the opposite happen in us of what is needed if we're really to see as Jesus wants us to. Because here's what age and religion do. We become arrogant with what we know. Right? Anyone have teenagers? And all of a sudden they start knowing more than you. Oh, and they know. Because their teacher told them. But we're all like that. Arrogant about what we know. Siraj, Ginny, they say, you can back me up if this is not true, but I've read that 50% of what you learn in medical school is obsolete by the time you start practicing. Think about that. Imagine if you were arrogant about what you knew in medical school and were unwilling to do something different when you started practicing. We do it with God all the time. And God is ginormous. Much bigger than a medical book. So what happens, instead of continuing on as children and wanting to know more and more and more and more, we slide into our dogmas and our certainties and we end up blind again. We put God in a box. And then all of a sudden, the wars to defend that box break out. But isn't it funny how we're defending our boxes? We're really not defending God because God's not in the box. Silly wars. Silly. We're all emperors without clothes at that point. Richard Rohr explains it this way. Religion has lost sight of the Jesus message. It has not tended to create seekers and searchers. It has not tended to create honest, humble people who trust that God is always beyond them. We aren't focused on the great mystery. Rather, religion has tended to create people who think they have God in their pockets, people with click, quick, easy, glib answers. That's why so much of the West is understandably abandoning religion. People know the great mystery cannot be the sim that simple and facile. If the great mystery is indeed the great mystery, it will lead us into paradox, into darkness even, and into journeys that never cease. That's a God worth knowing, I think. Beautiful. Which is why we must remain as children, always asking to see. Always asking to see. And I think this is why Jesus told this parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. So like all parables that Jesus told, it's similar in that Parables were designed to call into question everything we think we know, everything we are certain of, and to get us to ask to have our eyes open so we can really see God in his kingdom. 
Because Jesus tells these parables, and if you let the parables just be and read them for what they are, which we're going to try to read this one together for what it is, you can't help but say, oh, I guess I don't know anything about the kingdom of God. Jesus helped me understand. That's how he used parables in his day, to shake people up, to wake them up. But this one goes even further. This parable is really about the very reason for all the parables of shaking people up. So it's sort of the parable about the parables, if you will. But I want to confess, I don't like this parable. I hate it, actually. It exposes way too much of who I am. Just when when Ginny was reading it, and I start thinking, wow, I am so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. (laughs) Which is exactly why I am like that Pharisee. I hate this parable. The Bible's great for that. How's this mirror looking, Dick? And that's just the beginning. At its core, this parable is about faith about trusting that God is the God Jesus revealed. So I want you to think about this word faith, because this is something else our Greek Western minds have so much struggle with. Faith, by definition, is faith. It's not certainty. You do not believe 2 plus 2 equals 4, do you? You just know 2 plus 2 equals 4. When we take God and make Him that an equation that we can know, I think we start to become blind. Faith by necessity is faith. 30 years ago, and let me me explain what I mean because I don't want to be misunderstood here because there is certainty to our faith and I don't want to mistake that. Like I will tell you, I am certain Jesus is God. Okay? But it's still at that level, remember, there's faith there that's going into that. But in my mind, I am certain Jesus is God. But let me explain what I mean about blind certainty. So I'm in my early to mid-20s, and I'm an assistant at a big church in Southern California. And we were excellent Bible people, phenomenal Bible people. And a pastor from our denomination came one Sunday And he said, he held up the Bible and he said, so I just want to point out that the majority of people sitting here, you worship this. And there's a thousand of us sitting there. And 90% of us wanted to tar and feather this guy and hang him. Except the Holy Spirit started gnawing at me for like next few years. And I finally got what that guy was trying to tell us. We did worship the Bible. We didn't worship the God the Bible was about. We worshiped the Bible. Because we were absolutely certain we knew what the Bible said. 100% everything the Bible said, we knew. If there was Facebook 30 years ago, I would have started my Facebook post. The Bible clearly states. 30 years later, 30 years later, now that I've actually studied the Bible, because you can't possibly, early 20s, have ever studied the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Justy just got a degree in theology and hasn't studied the whole Bible yet. Right, Justy? You close? That a boy. Oh, not close. Well, you're so smart. You could be close. I was thinking, you know, three more books. You got it. See, so what we were doing was we weren't worshiping God. The Bible was about God, but we were worshiping the Bible. But worse, we were worshiping what we thought the Bible meant. And this brilliant, brilliant, brave pastor stood there and said, here's your idol. Sometimes I go back to that idol worship a lot. 
But now I love the Bible for being about God and God's Word, and I admire it and respect it and trust it and believe in it more than I ever did. And you know what? I don't have to defend it anymore. Because I just spend my time saying, God, I want to know what it means. Open my eyes. Open my eyes. I don't have wars over my boxes anymore. So at the core of this parable, it's about faith, about trusting that God is the God Jesus revealed. A God who finds the lost, makes great the least, and raises the dead. And whenever we assume ourselves not lost, not least, not dead, in other words, when we become certain of our ability to see, we probably no longer can see. It starts with Luke putting out there for for our consideration, the concept of righteousness. This is the immediate reason Jesus told the parable. Though to some who are confident of their own righteousness. This is the immediate reason Jesus is telling this parable. Now, we've examined this concept a lot here at Cana, but it's always worth repeating. I think everything should be revisited, and we're going to re-examine it now, and plus Cana's population keeps shifting, and the makeup of our community keeps shifting. But like being children, it's constantly re-examining things. So it is. Siraj is a great anesthetist because he, his whole life has been examining new ways to help people in surgery and not relying on old ways. God is so big, he invites us to keep examining. So let's examine. Here's what Bailey points out about righteousness. Bailey is the Middle Eastern scholar that we have referred to a lot, spent 40 years living amongst Middle Eastern Christians and others. In the Greek and Hellenistic world, righteousness was a general term that applied to a person who was civilized and who observed custom and legal norms. Generally speaking, these meanings have placed their stamp on the popular understanding of a righteous person even today. Such a person remains an admirable standard of morality, obeys the law, and is known as a decent person. Now, if we bring that understanding of righteousness into the Christian vernacular, here's what we would say. A righteous person is beyond moral reproach, walks blamelessly, is a strong believer, studies the word daily, goes to church, etc., etc. Okay? That's what we would think of when we think righteousness. Now, these are good things. These are good things. Please hear that. Okay? If I've already said something that you don't like and you're focused on that, please don't miss what I'm about to say. Those are good things. Being above moral reproach, walking blamelessly, strong believers, study the word. These are good things. Because to love others, really, as we have been commanded to do, many of these things will have to come into play. They have to come into play. You can't love your neighbor if you're sleeping with their spouse. So morality and obedience to God's commands are very helpful in helping us love others. Okay? I am not saying we shouldn't be obedient and we shouldn't be moral people. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? What I'm saying is righteousness in Scripture is not about following a code of ethics or being a good Christian or obeying all the rules as an end in and of themselves. That's not what righteousness is about. And those things don't make you righteous and they don't get you righteousness. There's no transaction for righteousness. It's instead about the love others part of the commandments. And when you read the Old Testament commandments closely, that's what they're about. Loving others. That's what Jesus helped us to see. So, if this is the case... New Testament righteousness 
cannot be separated from Old Testament righteousness. It can't be. But here's the irony. So many people, I'm included, have a broad misunderstanding of Old Testament righteousness, so we think we're being consistent with Scripture when we push a transactional or legalistic understanding of righteousness when we come to the New Testament. But here's the deal. In the Old Testament, righteousness is all about relationship. E.R. Octemeyer, a Hebrew scholar, helps us understand this. Righteousness, as it is understood in the Old Testament, is a thoroughly Hebraic concept, foreign to the Western mind and at variance with the common understanding of the term. The failure to comprehend its meaning is perhaps most responsible for the view of Old Testament religion as legalistic. But the Old Testament isn't legalistic. I hope we saw that last week when we studied Deuteronomy chapter 8. A wonderful, wonderful chapter that we should all know. In the Old Testament, it is not behavior in accordance with an ethical, legal, psychological, religious, or spiritual norm. It is not conduct which is dictated by either divine or human nature, no matter how undefiled. Rather, righteousness is in the Old Testament the fulfillment of the demands of a relationship, whether that relationship be with men or God. And Von Gard, Gerard Von Rad, gives even more insight into this. There is absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard, not only for man's relationship to God, but also for his relationships to his fellows. It is even the standard for man's relationship to the animals and to his natural environment. So righteousness then in Scripture is about right relationship, which is exactly why God is righteous. Perfectly righteous. He died to satisfy the demands of relationship with us. Remember, He created us to be in relationship with Himself. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't approach God with this idea, hey, can you create us so we can be in relationship with you? No, He started this. And while we are solely responsible for abandoning that relationship, He being righteous would not abandon us. This is the wonderful underlying tension we encounter as we read through the divine drama of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful piece of our scripture. God staying ultimately faithful to his righteousness even when humanity deserved much less. That's the story of the Bible. Especially the Old Testament. Is he mad? Is he angry? Yes, of course he is. Does he want to blow off his righteousness? Yeah, he does. And that's pretty scary, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And that's why the book of Malachi, whenever you're feeling down or lost or unloved by God, read the book of Malachi, because this is how the Old Testament ends. They will be mine. I, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. Ah! Oh, that's the story of the Bible. He loves us. So, remember that little story I told a little while ago when this pastor had to shake us up? There I was, mid-twenties, knew everything. I didn't even know this is what righteousness meant. The entire main concept of Scripture, I didn't even know what it meant, but I knew the Bible. See why it was my idol? In 30 years from now, 
I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to this sermon and be like, whew. We need to keep opening our eyes and asking for more and more and more and more. The problem is, and has always been, we humans remain incapable of meeting the demands of true righteousness. Right? We constantly fail through history and in our own lives to love God and love others with any real righteousness. Can anyone deny that? Is there anyone here who has loved others perfectly their whole life? This is why I always laugh when people really want to make a big deal out of, out of what Paul says here. There is no one righteous and not one. No. See, if you understand righteousness, you don't have to make a big deal out of this. You don't have to go in the street corner and say, do you know what sin is? You just have to go up and say, hey, have you loved everyone in your life perfectly, including your enemies? No, why? Oh, exactly. No, that's what the Bible says too. See, you don't... It, it, it's not a... Alright, i got to get back on track. We're running late, guys. But do you understand? Of course. Who needs the doctrine of original sin? Don't misunderstand that. I believe in it. But I believe in it because it's true. I've never met anyone that loves perfectly. And that's what sin is. The opposite of righteousness. Righteousness is loving others perfectly. So I get it, Paul. And it is exactly here in our total incapacity, or as a certain branch of Christianity calls it, total depravity. Okay? That God's righteousness proves itself to be not simply perfect, but absolutely divine, because what does he go and do? He gives us his righteousness. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. God justifies the wicked, not the righteous. He justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That David is the Old Testament David. See, it's always been like this. I'm sorry that religion has told us something different. So he gives us his righteousness. We simply need in faith to ask for it. And this has always been the way. Remember, Christ was a lamb slain from the foundations of the world. It happened a long time ago, long before Jesus came. So it's not some new revelation of God. It's simply the fuller picture a lens through which to see what has always been there in part. Von Rad again, I really like this. From the earliest times onwards, Israel celebrated Yahweh as the one who bestowed on his people the all-embracing saving gift of his righteousness. Nothing they earned. Nothing they transacted with. Don't, it's so hard. We, we take our Greek mind and we read a Hebrew book. That's half the battle of studying the Bible. We approach it with a Greek mind and we're not, and the Bible is written by Hebrews. I hope you took some good Hebrew classes, Justy. And it is believing the reality of this God, His righteous relationship to us, and the offer of His righteousness freely given to us that sits at the heart of this parable. Alright, let's consider first the Pharisee. Next week we're going to consider the, sin, the uh, tax collector, the publican. Today let's just briefly consider the Pharisee. He is not the pretentious hypocrite we often understand him to be. Do not think of him as a pretentious hypocrite. He's not. Think about it. He's at temple. He's, he's there. This is either the morning or the afternoon atonement service. So he's there. He's faithful. Furthermore, like any pious religious person of his time, he was standing off to the side by himself so he wouldn't be accidentally 
unclean by coming into contact with an unclean person like the publican, they wouldn't have been this close. Oh, they, 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 would, they wouldn't have been this close. That, that, that rendition, there's, there's, there's no way they would have been that close, just so you see. He would have been off to the side. That's why in the parable he was off to the side. He is praying. Another great thing to do. He is even giving glory to God for his goodness. Yeah, he's, he's sort of arrogant, listing off all these wonderful things about himself, but at least he's thanking God for them. And listen carefully to what he says about himself. This points to a man who is above reproach in both the religious and secular world. Think about this guy. He deals honestly and fairly in business, in probably all areas of his life. He is a loyal, faithful husband of one wife. He would never steal or cheat or harm anyone. So among society proper, this guy is a very respected member. Then think about it religiously. He tithes more than the required amount, and he fasts way more than the established laws on fasting. At that time, practicing Jews would re were required to fast for two days on either side of the three major feasts. Six days a year. But this guy fasted twice a week. This guy was as close to perfect as you could get. So now, put yourself in there, and it's easy to do, but put yourself in Jesus' audience, and then he drops the punchline. And he says, oh, and by the way, you see that guy right there? That's really good. He's going home unjustified. But that sinner over there is going home justified. Can't you just see their jaws just drop right to the ground? And our jaws should be dropping to the ground too to understand this parable. Because think about this guy Jesus described. This is the guy that every Christian church in America wants. This is the guy that they want on the board of elders. As a deacon. As a leader. As a pastor. Some churches you can't be on the board of elders unless you're this guy. Because this is the quintessential example of what a real Christian should look like. And if you don't look like this, put your mask on. No, not at Cana. Do not put your mask on at Cana. Because according to Jesus Christ, this guy goes home unjustified. Think about that. This is why I hate this parable. I'm terrified of it. Although it gives me good news because when you guys find out how awful I am and you want to fire me, just remember this parable, please. <laughs> and that's the real rub of this parable. The other guy, this tax collector. And we're going to explore next week, he is a horrible person. Horrible. To understand what tax collectors did in that day, horrible. And he goes home justified. Righteousness is about right relationship. And right relationship is about seeing. Seeing God. It starts there. In relationship with God. Seeing Him truly to have relationship with Him. And that relationship is ours for having if we simply believe He loves us and wants us in relationship with Him. Then that relationship transfers to us free of charge, free of anything we can do or know God's righteousness. And then in the magic of that reality, yeah, I use magic. I use the word magic. C.S. Lewis uses it, so I'm in good company. The magic of that reality, we discover the power by which to actually live in righteousness towards others. And listen, this is where childlike faith comes in. Being a child comes in. Because what I just described, 
That is a ginormous mystery. Ginormous mystery. But for those of us who have been around in Christianity so long, that whole thing of God's righteousness being ours, we've got that packed away in a nice, neat little box, don't we? And we got God in our pocket on that. But think about it. That is a ginormous mystery. God saying to a sinner, here, you be righteous because it's my righteousness. Don't put that in a box. Don't come up with a formula for that. Please, read this parable. This is a mystery we keep needing to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us deeper and deeper into more and more understanding of. So righteousness is about right relationship with God and others. But as long as we are looking for help, as long as we are looking for help to become a good person, an obedient person, a model Christian, as an end in itself, as an end in itself, because we think that is righteousness or we think that will get us righteousness. And this is key. That's what most of us do because we think that will get us righteousness. Then we're living outside of any help there is. See, the help God wants to give us is He makes us righteous when we admit we're not righteous. He makes us see when we admit we can't see. Then out of that, our response to that righteousness we have is then to live accordingly. God wants us to become like Him. He wants to fix His cracked image within us. He wants us to be truly righteous, living out love for Him and others. He wants us to see, because relationship is about seeing. It's about love. God loves us. God loves everybody. We'll talk about this more next week, but I want to leave this here. Maybe I'll make you come back for the second half. This guy that Jesus says goes home justified... How many churches would let this guy in? Would Cana? How many churches keep the very guy out that Jesus says goes home justified? Think about it. And no, does any church put a do not enter sign on their door? Of course not. We're much more subtle than that. Instead, maybe we do Facebook posts about certain kind of people that God doesn't love or never could love. How could they possibly come to church? Maybe we get into politics and have petitions signed against certain things. Oh, we still love you. You you love me? You want me to come to your church? How can I come to your church? Everything you do says you hate me. When we take God and put Him in a box and in our pockets, that's when we start doing to people what God would never do to people. Keep them away. We spent all last week talking about communion. That's why Cana has an open table. Jesus instituted a feast for everyone. When we turned it into a litmus test about worthiness, that's the anti-gospel. This parable, this parable, that sinner was welcomed by Jesus. He went home justified. 
God loves everybody. If our form of Christianity is not about that same purpose, even if it is perfect in morality, doctrinal understanding, creedal observance, it will only leave us going home unjustified. God's righteousness is about loving others, and we all need God's righteousness. Not some cheap human imitation. We need to want to see, or as the sinner in our story, whom we will look at next week, said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, just open my eyes. That's what this next song is all about.